0: As we read through the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we come to discover that there are two of what we would call ordinances that Jesus has established for us. Now, what's an ordinance? That might be an unfamiliar word to some of you, but an ordinance, according to the dictionary, is simply an authoritative command or order. So ordinances come to us from one who is an authority over us. And in Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So these ordinances come to us then under the authority that God the Father has granted Jesus. So they're the things that Jesus established in his day in which the church is expected to observe until he comes again. And what are those two ordinances? Let's hear your your answers. Lord's Supper and baptisms. The Lord's Supper and baptism are the two uh, ordinances which we are to observe uh, that Jesus has has commanded us to observe. So we're celebrating the Lord's Supper today. We'll be observing one of them. We tried to do that on a uh, roughly monthly basis. Uh, And the second is the baptism. And we're going to hopefully have a baptism service this summer as well. So if you've not been baptized, uh, this message is perhaps particularly for you. Uh, And if you have been baptized, this message is still for you as well. It is the Word of God, so it is for each and every one of us. Now, here's the thing. Both these ordinances proclaim the gospel. They are living pictures, if you will, of spiritual truths. And we understand them rightly. When we understand them rightly, we see how both of them illustrate the death and resurrection of Jesus. And in doing so, how they proclaim the grace of God which is being revealed to the world. These ordinances are living illustrations through which the gospel is being made known. And with those thoughts in mind, I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles with me this morning to the gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 3, we're going to begin reading in verse 4. And as you're turning there, I want to set the stage for you. John the Baptist has come on the scene. He's come to the people filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. He's preaching and teaching and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the kingdom of God was at hand. And his voice is one that fulfills prophecy. He is the one who was to come, a voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. That's John's ministry. That's what God has sent him to do, and he's doing it, and he's doing it faithfully. And so let me ask you, what has God sent you to do? Right? He, he doesn't save you just to save you. He doesn't work in your life just for your own benefit. God has a purpose in your life. He has left you here as a witness for a reason. And so are you fulfilling the purpose that God has set before you? Okay, John's ministry, he's doing it joyfully. People are coming, they're flocking to him from out in the wilderness, They're coming out to the Jordan River, They're being humbled by their sins, broken before God, and crying out in repentance. And I'll tell you what, up at Country Fest, a couple of people we had the opportunity to pray for, grown men just sobbing uh, after we would prayed with them and and shared. God was at work is what I'm saying. He was moving and stirring people's hearts, uh, and he does that as we're faithful uh, and as we cry out to him in prayer. Matthew describes what took place that day beginning in verse 4. There we read this, John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey, and people went out to him from all Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? "...produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, because I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry." He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hands, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Here's the thing. Oftentimes we think we need to water down the gospel message to make it more palatable to the people of our day. But that's not what we're to do at all. John tells it like it is. He doesn't pull any punches here. He speaks God's truth. And I'll admit, it it eventually leads to his death. But he was faithful and true to what God had set him to do and what the word of God proclaimed. Uh, The message he preached is the same with which Jesus began his ministry. Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And again, I want to put that out to you today. Maybe you're here and you've never repented of your sins. What does it mean to repent? Well, it means to to turn away from something, So, turn away from doing those things that are not in keeping with God's will, the way of living he's called us to in Christ, those things that are pleasing to him. When we're not doing those things or when we're doing things uh, the opposite of that, repentance is turning from that, confessing that we've done wrong in the eyes of God. And we turn from that, but we're not turning to an emptiness. We're turning instead to God. And we're actively seeking him, calling out to him in prayer, getting to his word, reading it, walking in obedience. That's what repentance is, a change of heart that leads to a change in direction. And maybe you're here this morning and you need to repent. We're all sinners. We're all falling short of the grace of God. But maybe you've never confessed to God that you are indeed a sinner. You can do that today. You can cry out to him even now in the quietness of your hearts and ask for his forgiveness Confess that you've done wrong, you've done that which isn't right in God's sight, and that you want to do that which is good and true and right and pleasing in God's eyes. Ask for forgiveness and ask for his strength to help you take those steps that need to be taken. John came and reminded the proud and self righteous of God's law. And this is what we see in the scriptures. There seems to be a pattern that God follows with his people it's law to the proud. And it's grace to the humble. And John came and he reminded the proud and self-righteous of God's law. Law that they had broken. In which by doing so had set themselves up in rebellion against the Lord God Almighty. And folks, this same law condemns men and women before God today. Think of the Ten Commandments. God's moral law to us. Number one states we'll have no other gods but God alone. Two, that we will not make nor worship any idol. Three, that we will not blaspheme. That is, we will not take the name of the Lord in vain. We will not use it as a curse word or anything like that. Uh, Number four, that we're to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Five, that we're to honor our father and mother. Six, that we shall not murder. Seven, we shall not commit adultery. Eight, we shall not steal. Nine, that we shall not bear false witness. And ten, we shall not covet that which belongs to our neighbors. Jesus is going to later sum up those 10 commandments in just two. He's going to say the greatest commandment is this to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And then he says the second is like unto it to love your neighbor as yourself. And in those two uh, commandments that he gives, it sums up all the law and the prophets, scripture says. Uh, it's profound. This is God's moral law for his people. And if we consider it rightly, we find that it condemns us. It makes us guilty before God. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we can see the reality of our own sin reflected in our failure to keep each of these commandments holy. And we're before we're tempted to feel proud of ourselves and believe that we've kept God's moral law perfectly, keep this in mind, Jesus equated hatred with murder. And he equated lust with adultery. And it isn't the worth of the item you stole that matters. It's the fact that you took something that did not belong to you in the first place. And when it comes to lying, it matters not if it was a little white lie in your books or a big old bold lie. The fact is you bore false witness. We're told in the pages of the scripture that whosoever has broken one of these commandments has broken them all. Is there anyone here who can raise their hand and say they have not broken a single one of those commandments? Can you say today that you've loved the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and you've loved your neighbor as you've loved yourself? I can't raise my hand to that. None of us can, because we've all fallen short of the glory of God. But God's mercy is this. We are condemned by the law, and the law reveals the reality of our sin. And in doing so, it breaks down our pride, It should cause us to humble ourselves, call out to God for mercy, for we are sinners in word, thought, and deed. That's law to the proud. But God's mercy is this, he gives grace to the humble. And so John, by preaching and proclaiming the reality of sin and the need for repentance, was preparing people to meet with Jesus. He was preparing them for the wonder of the gospel to come and the forgiveness and new life they could have in Jesus Christ. Verse 13 Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And in that moment, Scripture tells us heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So Jesus comes to John to be baptized. John is filled with the Holy Spirit. He knows that though he proclaims a baptism of repentance, that he too is a sinner, and he is in need of what only the Messiah can do. He needs grace. He needs God's grace that his sins might be forgiven, and he might receive new life. And so when Jesus comes to be baptized, John, who is very aware of his own sinfulness, doesn't want any part of it. Essentially, he says, I can't baptize you. I need to be baptized by you. You're more powerful than I. You are the Messiah. I just came to prepare the way. I'm as nothing compared to you. How is it that I should baptize you, Jesus? And yet Jesus says to him, it's okay, John. For you to baptize me is a good thing. It is a proper thing and fulfills all righteousness. Now, there are three things taking place as Jesus is being baptized that we don't want to miss out on this morning. First is this. Jesus is being identified as the Messiah. There are only three times in the Gospels where we're told that the Father speaks from heaven. This is one of them. This is my Son, whom I love, he declares, with him I am well pleased. And those words are an echo an affirmation of some scriptures from the Old Testament. They they reflect Psalm 2 and uh, Isaiah 42, passages which are recognized as messianic in nature. That is, they speak of the Messiah who was to come and who we know is Jesus. Psalm 2, the Lord declares, "'You are my son, today I have become your father.'" And from Isaiah 42, the Father declares, "'Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight.'" And I will put my spirit on him and he'll bring justice to the nations. So, the Father's words as Jesus is being baptized are a declaration of the truth that Jesus is the chosen one that the nation of Israel had been looking for. He was the Messiah, he was the Christ that the prophets had told them to expect. Secondly, in his baptism, Jesus is identifying himself with John's message. So, he is acknowledging the truth of what John had been proclaiming, namely that the Messiah was coming and had now come, and that in the wake of his appearing, there would be a coming day of judgment done upon mankind. To use John's imagery, the wheat will be gathered up and the chaff will be burned. Many people today think that things will continue as they always have, right? Life will go on as it always have day after day, generation after generation. Scripture says that's not so. Scripture says this is all building to a culmination. And there will be a day of judgment that comes. And in that day, the wheat, if you will, will be separated from the chaff. There will come a day in which many will experience the fullness of God's grace, while many others, those who have rejected the Son, Those who have not walked in repentance and received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in word, truth, and deed, they'll experience the terrible wrath of God that will be poured out against all sin. In entering the waters of baptism, Jesus is taking up the mantle of the ministry for which he has come. He was uniting himself with God's plan of redemption for sinful humanity, and he was preparing to stand in the gap between a people broken by their own sin and a holy God in whom no sin abides. And then finally, in his baptism, Jesus is identifying himself with sinful mankind. See, he was entering into our reality. He was showing us the way. And if it was proper and right and good for Jesus to be baptized, Jesus, who was sinless, how much more are we who have clothed ourselves with sin? How much more should we be baptized? Jesus alone is life and truth. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that's the Mormons, they believe in baptizing people for the dead. Over the years, one woman has been baptized more than 30,000 times. Can you imagine that? Must live in a constant state of being wrinkled from like when you're in a bath too long. 30,000 times. She did it for relatives and friends and people like Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar and Napoleon. And a Mormon elder commented, I believe that this lady, in the day of judgment, though being baptized for the dead, has saved more souls than Jesus. You know what that is, friends? That's heresy. That is not truth. No man or woman who has ever lived has been able to save themselves, let alone anyone else. Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. His is the only name by which man might be saved. He alone is that mediator between God and man. And anyone who has been saved has been saved by God's grace revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Now, baptism in and of itself doesn't save anyone. If that was the case, then Jesus wouldn't have needed to die on the cross. We could have just entered the waters and been baptized, and all would have been made right. The death of Christ and his subsequent resurrection would have been made completely unnecessary. Some of you, like me, may have been baptized as infants. Baptism did not accomplish your salvation. Baptism does not save a person. And if there's an image that might help you, let me share this with you. Imagine one of those two-liter pop bottles filled with dirty, muddy water inside. You screw the cap on tight, you tie a rope to it, and you throw it in a river. How long will it take for the inside of that bottle to be scrubbed clean, by the waters that are flowing. It's not going to happen, is it? Because it can't touch the inside. It can just touch the outside. The only way for the inside to get clean is for the bottle to be broken. And when we're broken by our sin, we call out to God. We lay down our rebellion. We take up the cross of Christ and the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us. That's why Peter writes this. He says, this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. We are saved by the grace of God. This is something I I found that I had to say several times to people uh, up at Country Fest as we're talking about salvation. People want to work for it. They want to earn it. They think that They want to think that if they do enough good deeds, it's going to outweigh their bad deeds. And they measure themselves. We measure ourselves against other people, and we come off looking pretty good. But the reality is that that's not the standard by which we should be measuring ourselves. That standard is Jesus Christ. And Scripture says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So it's not the washing with water that brings salvation. It's what it represents, that pledge of a good conscience towards God, Uh, that godly sorrow that brings repentance and leads to salvation. And again, Peter points us to the authority that Jesus wields. It's through him alone we are saved, for salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Every single one of us has sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We stand in need of salvation. That salvation is not found in Buddha. It is not found in Muhammad, It's not found through self-improvement or working harder. It is found in Jesus alone. But if baptism does not save you, then why am I up here talking about baptism? Why is it that we should be baptized? Well, in the 28th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, we find these familiar words. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, Uh, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Three things Jesus tells us to do there. First, we're to make disciples. That is, we're to teach people the truth about God and Jesus, about sin and salvation. And when they believe, when by faith they've accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, then we baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And after that, we continue to teach them about the way of life that God has shown us, what it means for us to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves, what it means to present yourself as a living sacrifice, your life dedicated to God. We show them what it means. We teach them what it means to walk by faith and grace and truth, even as we're growing in those things ourselves. Again, I was baptized as an infant, wasn't my choice. It wasn't based on my belief. It was simply the will of my parents based on what they'd been taught in the churches that they grew up in. But after I came to faith and experienced God's grace for myself, I was baptized again. Why? Because now I was a Christian. I was a Christ follower, and my desire to was to walk in obedience to those things that Jesus had commanded. It was both a step of faith and an act of obedience on my part. And it's faithful to the picture that we find in the scriptures. If you begin reading the book of Acts, you'll see this pattern emerge. People come to faith. They're convicted of their sin. They cry out to God for a Savior. And immediately, they're baptized. Lydia, the Ethiopian eunuch, the Philippian jailer, each one was baptized immediately following their believing in the gospel message. That's so often not what we see happening here in North America now, maybe part of that is that we have winter for like eight months of the year and don't need to chip through the ice to make a place for baptism to happen. But uh, people tend to wait many years between belief and baptism, and that's not the scriptural picture at all. Sometimes people tell me they, they wait to be baptized because they don't feel worthy. Well, here, here's the news, Flash. There's not a one of us who is worthy. That's why it's called grace. Right? We accept that grace, we walk in obedience, we take that step of baptism. I don't think that you need to put off baptism until sometime you've reached a certain level of perfection or godliness in your life. That is not the picture at all. That work is going to continue throughout the course of your life. We choose to be baptized because love walks in obedience. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey what I command we've seen that Jesus has commanded us to be baptized, not as infants, but as believers, as disciples, those who believe Jesus is the Son of God who paid the price their sins demanded. And Jesus equates the reality of our love for him with our walking in obedience. So it's easy to say that we love someone or something, but love is most evidenced by our actions. Our actions reveal the truth of what we proclaim. Those who claim to love him will walk in obedience to his commands. And if we say we love him, but we fail to walk in obedience, we've made ourselves out to be liars, Scripture says. You see, love, again, is best expressed in action. That's what God has shown us. That's how he's revealed himself to us, right? John 3:16. say it with me if you know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, But have eternal life. In Camp Staff, some of your lips weren't moving. And the rest of the congregation, some of your lips weren't moving. If you need to start memorizing scripture, start with this verse. This is a good place to start. It proclaims how God has demonstrated his love for us. God's love moved beyond mere words and expressed itself in action as Jesus died on the cross and was raised to new life. So we choose to be baptized because love walks in obedience. And we submit ourselves to baptism because we believe that Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life. Like obedience, belief is best expressed by our actions as well. I like the story of the man who went on vacation to Israel with his wife and her mother. While in Israel, unfortunately, his mother-in-law died from a heart attack. The couple went to a local undertaker who explained that they had a couple of options. They could either ship her body home, which would cost more than $1,500, or they could bury her right there in the Holy Land for just $150. Without hesitating, the man said, we'll ship her home. Surprised, the undertaker responded, are you sure? That's an awfully big expense. We can do a really nice service for her right here. The man said, look, 2,000 years ago, they buried a guy here, and three days later, he rose from the dead. I can't take that chance. We laughed. But that guy's belief changed the way he looked at the world. It changed the way he was willing to do life. That's the type of belief that Scripture talks about as well. A belief that moves beyond mere intellectual acknowledgement to a heartfelt response to God's revealed truth. That results in transformed lives. One of the people I was talking with up at Country Fest there, uh, he wasn't pleased with how his life was going. He didn't understand why he wasn't drawing closer to God, and why he wasn't growing in his faith. But he wasn't choosing to walk in obedience to anything. He wasn't submitting himself to the scriptures. And so I was trying to explain that to him, uh, that if our lives are to be changed, it's going to start with that obedience. If we've believed upon Jesus Christ, we begin to read his word, we understand God's will for us. We start taking those small steps of faith. So why be baptized? Because we want to be identified with Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus' baptism, (coughs) pardon me, Jesus' baptism was a way for him to be identified with sinful man. In our baptism, it becomes a way we can be identified with Jesus. Baptism is a public profession of an inward confession. So it's a public profession of what's taking place inside you, As the Holy Spirit has made you a new creation. Jesus says, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Baptism is a way of saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is a power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. We choose baptism because we want to follow in Jesus' footsteps. In the Gospels, we read how Jesus has set us an example that we're to follow. We're told to count the cost, to walk as he walked, to live as he lived. Baptism ought to be the first step of a transformed life. And finally, we choose baptism because baptism proclaims the reality of what Jesus has done in our lives. Someone once said it this way, From the time of Abraham to the time of Jesus, the Jewish people were the chosen people of God. They were the only people on the face of the earth who knew the one true God. From Abraham, God raised up this nation to be his voice to the entire world. It was to them that God introduced himself, gave his laws and commands. His manifest presence was confined to the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle and later the temple. And the only way for a human being to know and to understand God was to be born a Jew or to become a Jew through conversion. There was a process through which a non-Jew could become a Jewish proselyte. And that process involved three things. It involved a sacrifice, it involved a circumcision, and it involved a baptism. Once this process had been completed, the proselyte was now considered to be a Jew in every way. He had fully renounced his previous life, his previous nationality. All the allegiances he had in his previous life ceased to exist. He was now fully Jewish. He or she was not someone who had simply added Jewishness to his old identity. In a sense, the Gentile died when he went under the water, (coughs) and a new person with a new name and a new identity was born when he came up out of the water. Folks, in a way, that is a picture of what is to happen to us as we become children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. There has been a sacrifice. Christ's blood has been shed. He is the lamb that was slain, as we sang earlier. There's been a circumcision of our hearts, and there is to be a baptism. We enter into the water, as it were, with one identity, uh, and we emerge with a new one as we identify ourselves with Jesus and his sacrifice, his resurrection, and his ministry, as well as his kingdom. It's symbolic of being made dead to sin, but alive in Christ. And it illustrates not just the death and new life, but it also proclaims a very real hope in the resurrection that we'll one day undergo. You see, baptism, that becomes a starting point of sorts for a new life, a new way of living that we receive in Jesus. We're told in Scripture that he who is faithful in the little things will be found faithful in much. And baptism is a step in the right direction as you follow in Jesus' footsteps. And so if you've never been baptized before and you are a believer, you've trusted Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sins, you've confessed, repented, uh, you've been born again, uh, you need to be baptized as soon as possible. This is what scripture teaches us. Uh, And if you're baptized as an infant but never as a believer and you believe today, then you ought to be baptized as soon as possible as well. I want to encourage you in that. These are steps of faith that we take. And if you've just repented today, and if you've come to faith this morning and received forgiveness for your sins, then you need to be baptized as soon as possible as well. Because baptism is both an act of faithful obedience to the word and will of God as well as a proclamation to the world of the new creation we become in Jesus. Sometimes people say to me they don't want to be baptized because they tell me they're waiting for God to tell them when the time is right. That sounds holy in everything, But it fails to acknowledge this, that God has already spoken. He's already told us to do this. Go and make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. So let me put it out there. Do you need to be baptized? If you receive God's grace and be born again, but never have been baptized, the answer should be a resounding yes. And again, we're going to try to have at least one baptism service this summer. So if you are interested in taking that step of faith, Uh, come and see me, message me, call me, let me know, or let one of the elders know, uh, and we'd be happy to talk to you about that and to arrange that step of faith. So that's the first ordinance. Uh, And before you panic, we're not going to spend as long on the the ordinance of the Lord's Supper this morning, teaching about it, because we're going to be celebrating it. And so on the table uh, in front of you, uh, trays with pieces of bread, and other trays with cups of juice. Uh, Those are emblems, if you will, that uh, point us towards something else. So the bread is the body of Christ, reminds us of the body of Christ, turns our our hearts to to Christ, and and the cup represents the blood uh, that was shed for for the forgiveness of sins. And in a few moments, the servers are going to come, and we're going to pass around the bread and the cup. You are welcome to share in this, if you are a new creation in Jesus Christ. And if you're not there yet, if you haven't received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, uh, we are glad you're here. And maybe you have questions, come and talk to myself or, or someone else after the service would be happy to try and answer them. But if you are not yet a, new believer, or not yet a believer in Christ, we're going to ask you just to let those elements pass you by. Uh, pass them on to the next person. This is uh, something for the people of God to participate in as we remember uh, the cost of sin. Sin brings death, but in Christ we have life. Uh, And like baptism, the Lord's Supper is a proclamation of the gospel message. Paul writes that we proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus every time that we eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For the bread is the symbol of Christ's body given to death as he atoned for our sins, and the contents of the cup are a symbol of Jesus' blood, which was shed for the forgiveness of sins. So I'll ask the the servers to come forward at this time. Uh, If you are with us for the first time today, uh, you will find that the bread and cup come to you one right after the other. Uh, Hold on to both of them, please, until everyone has been served, and then we'll take them together.